It seems strange to pivot from praying to a completely different direction, but for the kids, with kids in mind, I wanted to start this uh, morning with a dad joke. It's not original to me. It's one I heard on the radio, but it seemed to sort of fit in some way, so I'll find a way to shoehorn it in. And the joke is this. Why, why didn't the skeleton go to the prom? Have you heard that one? Why didn't the skeleton go to the prom? The dance. Because he didn't have any body to go with. Right. Say, okay, Bob, please move on. What does that have to do with anything? Well, we think about the ministry of Jesus, and God gave him a body. God gave him a body, in fact, to give for us in death. Anything that we do, whether it's go to the prom, whether it's go to a barbecue, whether it's come to church, whether it's interrelate with one another, anything that we do that we know we do through a body. God made himself known to the world. First of all, through his prophets, in all kinds of ways, the book of Hebrews says, in many words and stories, and the record of it, But ultimately, God made himself known in flesh, in his son, in a body. God translated himself into our humanity. The best work that God ever did, the redemption of rebellious humanity, he did in a body, right? And now that continues. Well, Jesus was here. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He was with his disciples. He ascended into heaven. Is Jesus any longer doing anything today? Is he? You're kind of quiet on that one. Yes. How is our Lord continuing to work in the world today? He continues to do it through his body. His body, which he calls the church. He, in fact, it has been said, to bring it down to very practical terms, that the church, the believers in Jesus, are the very hands and feet of Jesus in the world, that he lives his life through us. And I am not comparing Jesus to a skeleton. Please don't let that be the takeaway. But wouldn't it be a shame that Jesus didn't go here or there where he intended to work because he didn't have his body to go with. That what Jesus does, if I got anything out of that joke, what it, remind, it reminded me of two things. It reminded me of the, of the importance of family as a dad joke. I think that was the purpose of the ad that I heard it on. But, but along with that was the importance of us as the body of Christ, that we are the ones through whom our God is working in this world. And what, what he does or what he doesn't do, he does or doesn't do through his church. And yet it seems the church doesn't have a whole lot of impact on our society at present. Would you, would you agree with that as well? There are a lot of voices. There are the, those spokesmen who are the leading voices of the church. 
And yet uh, people like uh, Franklin Graham or Al Mohler or David Platt, they are not speaking to the society as a whole. Or at least the society as a whole is not listening to them. Those well-known voices are voices speaking to the church, not to society. How is it, how is it that our Lord will speak to the society and the culture around us? Maybe it's not through well-known voices. Maybe it's through lesser-known voices. In the past, we, we think in terms of those, oh, those well-known voices, voices, right? You think Billy Graham. When Billy Graham had something to say in his generation, it, it, it mattered. I remember a time when the pastor here at Brush Prairie, this wasn't in my time, but the, the, when, when there was some big issue going on, the newspaper, the Columbian, they would often phone up Pastor Dick Temple and they would ask him his thoughts on the matter. I don't know when the last time somebody from the Columbian called me up and asked what my thoughts as a pastor were on something that was happening within our society at large. Those, those voices that have some position or recognition are not heard today. It's the lesser-known voices. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. In the first century, pastors didn't have influence in the culture. Pastors were considered marginal or fringe. But, but the gospel grew. And it grew because the gospel went like wildfire from the church, from the body, around to those who knew them, whom they knew. In fact, Paul didn't claim any any particular status or influence or position when he came into a place like Corinth or here in Ephesus. He says, in fact, I, determined, I, I, I would not have anybody think any high, more highly of me than what they see in me. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Think about Paul's statement there. I don't want anybody to think any more of me. I don't come with any credentials. I don't come with letters of reference. I don't come with my doctoral diploma. I don't want anybody to think any more of me than what they see in me. Has it ever occurred to you that you have the same credential as the Apostle Paul when it comes to your neighbor? And certainly your neighbor would hopefully... Listen more to you than they would to Pastor Bob or the Apostle Paul because they don't know much about, have not seen much in Bob or Paul. But they have seen something in you. As you have lived life before them and perhaps in some ways with them. Let me, let me come at this from another direction. How many of you watched the presidential debate on Tuesday night? Uh, you want that 90 minutes back, don't you? <laughs> did, did anybody, uh, did, did you think very many people actually um, changed the perspective of who they were going to vote for based on what they saw in the debate? Most, most pundits, if they can be believed, say no. That most people actually tuned in to watch the debate to cheer for one candidate or the other. Afterwards, the people who got feedback afterwards, what was the debate about, what was said, what happened, the summaries of it, they went to a source which they regularly go to, which gives the, is going to give that, that summary from their perspective. 
sort of an echo chamber kind of effect. In fact, what is it that changes people's perspectives by and large? The biggest impact is actually somebody they have relationship with. Hearing insightful perspective or observation, insightful and coherent, you can explain it to some extent, from somebody whom they know and trust. Somebody whom, from what they've seen, they have some respect for, some credibility. Because we have so many talking heads saying so many different things that we don't put a lot of authoritative weight in our own thinking to it. Rather, it's somebody whom I've seen something in is somebody who has some influence upon me, somebody that I listen to. Why is that important? Well, in this, in this midst of COVID stop and restart for churches and, and in society as a as, as general, we have, we have been asking questions about what's essential. Only essential things can be done. And, and the church has said, well, wait, wait a minute, church is essential. Is it? You know, it's interesting when the Washington State government put out their initial, in that first week, they put out guidelines. These are the things that you can do in work environments, and these are the things how professions, various professions and services can cope in the midst of this shutting down of, of almost all functions in our society. And churches were, by and large, left out of those guidelines completely. I don't think that was... Um, um, intentionally saying that churches shouldn't do anything, it seemed to be by what, how things played out and the corrections that came later that they were simply overlooked. The churches were not even thought of. For people around us that don't go to church, church is not considered essential in our society anymore. It probably used to be. It doesn't anymore. And so is church essential? First of all, for who? I would say Christians... Yeah, there was quite a, of course church is essential because I would say, biblically, church is essential for you. But all of that, that, that pausing and then restarting and how do we restart and what do we restart, that raised questions for us that were good questions for us to think through and respond to and answer what is essential about church. What must we do and therefore how do we do that? And as we start doing things, what are the things that are most essential for us to start? You remember, even before we could meet together as church gathered again, we began meeting together as church in your home and, and in small groups that are continuing. That was an important thing to do. And you felt the lack of it. You felt the isolation. You felt the being alone. And we needed that connection with others. Well, that has, it's a good time for us as we think through then what is essential about church. It's a good time to start a new series, a series I'm going to call Essential Church. This is a series Pastor Ryan and I are going to be sharing together. We're going to be walking through things that as pastors and elders we have been walking through together over the last several months, really even the last year together, in terms of what our ministries ought to look like, what direction they ought to go in. What might change in terms of essential church? It's a good question to ask because certainly what's essential in church determines what leaders should be leading in and what it is in the midst of many demands in your lives. 
What are the things that are essential that you also are going to devote yourself to and participate in? We don't merely need more activities and busyness. What is essential? There's been a fun clearing of the decks in our, in our lives and activities, hasn't there? Especially if you're, if you're a, f- a family with kids. There were all these activities and you were shuttling this way and that way and hurrying off to one thing after another and all of a sudden everything stopped. And now you get to choose, okay, what are we going to add back and why? That's good for family and it's also good for us as a church. So we want to think through this together. Now, imagine, imagine that you are there back in Galilee. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has shown himself to his disciples, and he's called his disciples, say, come, gather together in Galilee, and I'll meet you there. And he takes them to a high mountain in Galilee. And it was probably, perhaps it was Mount Arbel. Arbel is a very high mountain plateau above the, um, above the Sea of Galilee and the plain of Gennesaret. And so from there, Julie, Julie, be careful. No, it's okay. She's with Jesus. So she's, remember, the disciples are with Jesus on this high mountain. But from there, they can look out over Galilee, and they can see that over there was where Jesus fed the 5,000. Over here where he came to us across the water. Over here he fed the 4,000. Over there, there was the, the demonic man. And then there were the pigs, the original Bay of Pigs story. That happened across over there. And they're remembering all of these ways in which Jesus re- revealed himself to them and all of these places that they can see as the Lord began his ministry and walked it with them in this place of Galilee. Up there on that mountain, you can look down and you can see the route of the International Highway. That's why there was a tax collector base there in Capernaum. And that highway connected everything from Persia and Babylon in the east out to the Mediterranean and the Roman road. And it had a lot of traffic. And right in the middle of that international crossroads, Jesus starts his ministry. And he starts it with a bunch of uneducated Galileans who understand how to function within that international crossroads environment. Because what Jesus began to do in his gospel to the world, now he was going to continue to do through them. They had walked with him in it for three years, knowing him and his gospel and his ministry. And now he says, okay, guys, now you're going to take it and run with it. And isn't that what Jesus has said to us? Hasn't the commission that he gave initially to his disciples, isn't that the commission that he gives to his church? To to make disciples, going, baptizing, teaching, to go to others around us, to bring them into God's family, to build up one another as followers of Jesus. Isn't that the same commission he's given to us? And yet you say, but I wasn't there. I wasn't with Jesus on that mountain. I wasn't with Jesus bodily, physically walking with him for those three years to learn of him, to hear his word, to to grow in his calling for me before he would send me on his own. How can I do that? Is Jesus still doing that in the world today? Walking with those 
that he would send out. I would say he is. That mission hasn't changed. God's purpose hasn't changed. In fact, Jesus continues to walk with bodily those that he will also then grow up and send out. That's what he did in a body in Galilee. That's what he continues to do in the body of Christ, the church. Now, I may be stretching you a little bit at this point, so I better anchor all of these wonderful ideas into a text. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and particularly 4.12, is described as, this is the pastor's job description. You're thinking, great. Now we can talk about what Bob's supposed to be doing around here. Because pastors are called to the the, uh, ministry, right? Pastors are called to the work of ministry. Well, let's see. Because not only does Ephesians 4 contain the pastor's job description, but Ephesians 4 contains the job description of the church body. And as you can guess, I've talked a lot about body. That's probably where I want to focus. So let's read in Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 7. I invite you to take your Bible, your device, however you're, you're, you're reading God's Word this morning. Follow along with me. And then after we've read the verses, we'll talk through them a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We're jumping in the middle of a paragraph, but you'll, you'll catch up. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Quoting Psalm 68. In saying he ascended, what does that mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended to the earth is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, or truthing in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are to grow into his likeness, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to talk through those verses one after another, what's there for us and how do we put that together? First, again, let's, let's just pause and say, Lord, would you open your word to us? Father, we do. When we come to your word, we need to hear from you. Father, we recognize that it is by the Spirit of the living God that we understand these things. This is not just logic and explaining. Father, this is the burden of your Spirit that's printed on pages and needs to be pressed into our hearts. So, Father, would you open your word to us this morning? And, Lord, help us to step into your calling for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse, verses 7 to 9, first of all, the, basically, each of us has been gifted. And, you've, and you see that other places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12 is, is, is perfect for it. Romans chapter 12 expresses the same thing. That each one of us is gifted by the Spirit of God for the church body. 
And the purpose of those gifts is to build up the body as a whole. They are not given for us in serving ourselves. We are gifted according to the measure of Christ's gift, according to the pattern of Christ's giving. Christ gave himself for others. Our gifting is for the use of others. When we take that which God has given us and we use it sacrificially for others, we are stepping into the likeness of Christ, which is fitting as his body. When Also, it says there that how did he give his gifts? He ascended on high and he gave gifts. Jesus ascends. The Holy Spirit indwells believers, and we are gifted by that indwelling Holy Spirit. That comes after Jesus' ascension. It says, well, how did he ascend unless he first descended? You see, what he's doing here is he's doing a Philippians 2 move. He's reminding us that Jesus first descended into humanity, laid aside his prerogatives of deity. He laid aside his heavenly robes, if you will, and he clothed himself in a peasant's burlap. He came in the likeness of men, and he came as a servant. He humbled himself. He descended in order to ascend. If we are going to use our gifts in the body of Christ the way that Christ intends, we're going to use those gifts according to the measure of Christ's giving, which is in humility, for the good of others, not for the glory of oneself. Each is gifted according to, for the purpose of others. Verses 11 and 12, so God has given church leaders. And the passage is not merely saying that it's the church leaders who are the gifted ones. He's already said each one of us is gifted. So now he's going to address church leaders particularly in their relation to the church body as a whole. Because easily there's a thing called a cleeping clericism. That, that seems to put the emphasis on the ministers who are called to the, to, to the ministry to do the work of the ministry, which is upside down of how it's supposed to be. So verse, verse 12 says that, that he gave these leaders in particular, these, these ones that he mentions, including pastors and teachers, to equip the saints. That challenges what you think about saints. Saints are not dead people later recognized. If saints are going to be equipped by pastors, they must be living. I don't know if you've ever been to some of those old, old um, um, church cathedrals, t- t- typically in Europe, where they actually have dead people in the service. Have you been in one of those? This big cathedral, and there'll be these large, um, basically it's a tomb in the middle of the church, and there might be three or four of them. Uh, for instance, uh, I think it's Westminster Abbey, where you can look over the side. It's either Westminster or St. Paul's. I can't remember which. But you can look over and you say, oh, I see Lord Nelson is there with us in church this morning. He's there every week. And one, part of what they're saying in that is that the church of all ages does worship the Lamb of God together. Yes, the church is one whole. And yet at the same time, it's not those dead people recognize the saints who are going to be equipped by pastors and teachers. So all of those within the body, all of those who have been redeemed and forgiven in Jesus, all of those who by faith in Jesus join at his table, they are his holy ones. His saints. His one saint means, a holy one means to be set apart for God's particular purpose. Like there were holy articles in the temple. There were holy, holy um, accessories in the tabernacle that were set apart. They weren't used for any old thing. They were used for God's special purposes. And he says, 
that you and I in the church are his saints. We're set apart for his particular purposes. And so we are then too, in a church, the purpose, the the organized function of the organized church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry that they're supposed to be doing. What is that work of ministry? That work of ministry is identified in the very next phrase, the work of ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ, the growing, the building of the body of Christ, so that the church will be Jesus on mission, that people around us will not be left not knowing Jesus because they never got a chance to see him. They will see him and hear of him and know what he's like by his likeness in the body, which has been properly built up or grown or matured in his likeness for his ministry. Jesus told his disciples that, that um, the student is to become like his teacher in all things. As they learned of Jesus in walking with him and participating with him, they would be like him. The disciples would grow to be like the rabbi. They would resemble the rabbi. So it is that there ought to be a a family resemblance. There ought to be a likeness of Jesus in his body, the church, expressed across the members of that body as we are in the midst of the world in the work of ministry he's given us to do. So the church leaders are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is building up the body. And what is the goal of that? that is, there's a purpose. So we, we would believe then that the purpose of the church is to equip God's family for God's mission. Do you buy that? The purpose of a church organized, what we do together, out of verse 12, is to equip God's family for God's, minis- God's mission, that work of ministry. To build up the body so that the body can do what Jesus would have us to do in the midst of this world. What does that look like? What's what's the aim of that? What's the goal of that? What should that equipping accomplish? Look at verse 13 again. Until we attain to a unity of faith and of knowing or knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood or a mature humanity of humanity reaching its goal, humanity growing into what it's supposed to be in God's redemption. That in our redemption, God is restoring fallen humanity, selfish humanity, back to what God always intended humanity to be and do. Well, what does that look like? We saw perfect humanity, unspoiled by sin, untainted by selfishness. We saw it in Jesus. And that's what the rest of the world needs to see in the body of Jesus, his church. That'll only happen if we grow in that likeness. If we grow together as God's family, as the body of Christ, if we are growing one another in that likeness of what God intends redeemed humanity to be and to do. And that includes, first of all, to arriving at a unity of of faith. That just means, oh, we all believe. No, it really includes believe what? 
The unity of the faith. The faith is not believing. The faith is that body of truth which is believed. Think of it in terms of the essentials of the Christian faith or teaching that a person believes to be a Christian. Think of the faith in those terms. There is a body of truth that we need to know and grow in and understand and be able to rest in and put our confidence in so that we are not tossed around by, first of all, the waves of circumstances. That when this happens and that happens, that we are not just thrown off course and we don't know what to do, that still our our anchor is who we know our God to be, what we know about him that we have grown a settled confidence in. Not only that, but knowing God's truth, growing in a a oneness of the faith, grows us in in, um, the ability when there's other winds of doctrine and teaching and deceptions and distractions that would push us this way and push us that way. We're able to analyze that in what did God say about that. And the things that go on in our society today, it's easy for Christians to get caught up in the winds of the times. Any example of that? How about Black Lives Matter? It seems, well, of course, Black Lives Matter. And you would try to go on from there to say, well, don't other lives matter, but be careful because that means something else. And we found along the way that Black Lives Matter meant more than just a certain minority's lives should not be being disregarded and less cared for and um, treated less valuable than other lives. Actually, the Black Lives Matter movement meant a whole lot more than that and actually had very strong atheist underpinnings rather than an expression of the Christian faith where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Yeah, there's no room for racial discrimination in the Christian faith, and yet... That's not what Black Lives Matter was about as we got into it. Uh, Another example of that, critical race theory today. That that we want to to stand against systemic racism, right? Well, there there is inherent racism that's boiled into, that's baked into the, the systems and structures in our culture so that minorities will never have the same legitimate chance or opportunity that a non minority does. Well, that sounds like a problem. That sounds like something that needs to be addressed, and it's, it's something that's easy for Christians then to get on the bandwagon about, yeah, this, this, uh, this whole systemic racism thing. But wait a minute, as you begin to unpack critical race theory, which is the apologetic, is the philosophy for understanding systemic racism, well, it turns out that a majority person has to be racist and oppressive. A minority person is not racist or oppressive. Now, if I can take and call somebody, if I were to take, say, look at minority people and say, because this person is this minority, they are racist. What? Wouldn't that be racist? I'm calling somebody racist because of their race? So if I do that with a majority race, am I not also saying that because of this person's race, because they are of the majority race, they must be, they have to be racist. Am I not racist for calling somebody racist by their race? So it turns out that critical race theory is actually systemically racist. 
Wrap your head around that a while. Just jot that down and pull it back up later. But the point being, there's these, there's these philosophies out there in the culture that apart from God, humanity is wrestling with fairness and justice that they can't come up with apart from God. And we need to be grounded in the truth of God in his fairness, his justice, his righteousness, and how God has answered the needs of human injustice. And that is our filter, and that is how we understand the ebb and flow of the culture around us. So that we're not carried around, that we need to be grounded. That happens in the church body. I'm reminded, at this point, I'm reminded of a story I heard recently in one of our, out of one of our small groups, where somebody in the group was seeing this in the midst of, or in, in the life of another, as, as he as he got to know them, as he saw them. And so I, I asked Noah, I said, Noah, could you briefly share that story, that glimpse, that impact that had on you with the church as a whole? Hello, oh, it's on. So Hello we, Noah. So my family joined a small group just, I don't know, a month ago, a couple weeks ago. And it's multi-generational. There's kids as young as my brother. Then there's young adults like myself, parents, and grandparents, and one grandparent in particular, uh, Gary Eddy. One thing I just noticed and observed while partaking in small group is how he was able to take the context of scripture and make it easier to understand and relatable to real life today, which I thought was just crazy how easy and seamlessly he did it. And it was encouraging, super encouraging to me personally especially in this really weird, strange time we're living in right now. Everyone's shut down, da-da-da-da-da. So, yeah, that's just one way. Yeah, so, what, so, so what, what Noah described. Thanks, Noah. Appreciate it. You keep that. I'm not supposed to touch it. The, um, what, 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 what Noah saw, he saw this, this older man in our church body as he interacted, as they had some life on life together, he saw in him this ability to, to take the truth of God's word and relate that into real life in ways that light was shined on a situation and a circumstance. Wait a minute. Jesus did that over and over again in his ministry, didn't he? And the disciples saw it. So what, what Noah saw in Gary actually... Noah saw a little bit of what Jesus looked like in this older man. And that is what's supposed to be happening within the body of Christ. That's what's supposed to be happening in God's family. That we need to be involved in life on life together for the purpose of growing one another up. He said, I want to grow. I want to grow into more of that. I want that to be more in my life. That I can relate God's truth into life the way that he saw an older man do that. That's how we're growing one another, building one another up. And so that that truth will be changing us. It's not just a matter of knowing truth, but it's a matter of truthing in life, that we will be truthing in love, that the, the fullness of Jesus was a matter of living out the reality of God's truth in the midst of real life circumstances. That Jesus, if, if you are growing in understanding God's grace, you are going to have to be more gracious. If you're not, you don't understand God's grace to you. As you're, under, as you're deepening in your grasp of God's forgiveness and the, the hold of God's forgiveness on you, it has to make you more forgiving. That's why Paul writes, forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
as your forgiveness sinks in, you have to be more forgiving. That's the normal and natural response. That is what our God is like. That is what Jesus is like. Jesus balances that truthing in love. Easily we take truth and we use truth as a standard by which we judge and our truth ends up feeling more judgmental or condemning. Or Christians will go to the other extreme and we are going to focus on love because God is love. And we're going to have love and we're going to have our arms open wide and we're going to love everybody because God loves everybody. And in the midst of that, we're going to lose any absolutes. Jesus truthed in love. He, he merged those two together in, in faith, in life, of truth in walk in ways that are the normal Christian life for us. Jesus didn't do that by being judgmental and condemning or by being just whatever. Jesus had absolutes. In fact, Jesus could be so intolerant as to say, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus raised the bar and said, well, you've heard the law says do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have in your mind, committed adultery with her. Jesus raised the bar. He raised the standard. And yet, and yet he said, he, he was the one who came near the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that had such a backstory that nobody else would, would get near her. He's the one who, who says to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I forgive you, or, or neither do I condemn you. Forgiveness. Go and sin no more. Truth. Jesus is the one who wept over Jerusalem. I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. Jesus is the one who at the cross said to those who mocked him and tortured him, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus is the best example anywhere of truth and love coming together, truthing in love. And that is exactly what the church needs to grow up in. And we'll do that by truthing in love together with other real people with skin on. We'll practice it here like Jesus practiced with those disciples and then we will take it on the road. Then we will export it. Then we will go out. As Jesus had three years with his disciples, it ought to be true in the church. If you give us three years, you'll be ready to be on Jesus' mission to people around you. Unfortunately, that's too often not the case. That's not true in the church because we're not intentional. How are we doing what is essential in building one another up as followers of Jesus? So then verse 16, verse, verse 16 comes to the conclusion. Then from whom the whole body joined together by that which every joint is equipped, when each part is working properly, I love some translations, when each part is doing its part, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is a part for everyone. Church is essential, or an essential of church is that every member in the body is essential. Go back to that skeleton joke. Let's hang some parts on the skeleton. Let's not leave the skeleton hanging there with no body at all. But what's missing? And how is it, how does a member of the body function apart from the body on its own in the midst of the world? Can go nowhere and do nothing but together, and that with every 
joint supplies. And that by which every joint supplies, the, the wording there is by every supportive connection. How do we as a church provide supportive connection that the body is tied together in ways that reinforce one another? It's, a, it's going to be a different world post-COVID. I think we can agree on that. There's going to be changes. There are changes in our culture, and this is just a push that shoves more of those changes forward. And we'll be a different church. Not radically. Not radically different, but intentionally different. We're, 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 we have perhaps been reminded by the book of Daniel that we don't have a lot of time, maybe. We don't know how long before the Lord comes, so we're going to redeem that time in ways that matter in ways that strengthen us for the ministry that God has for each of us, where God has set us among all of those around us. We're going to redeem the time that Jesus through us would redeem lives. We believe that God's purpose for BP Church is for us to equip God's family for God's mission. We're going to be talking more about how do we do that in the coming weeks, but my time is more than gone, so let's pray. Father, Lord, we want what you want. And Father, we'd have to confess up front, we'd have to say that, Lord, we've, we've neglected some things that you want. That which you would have your church to be about and to do, we may have lost sight of along the way as we've looked to others to do things for us. But Lord, would you use us as the body of Christ. Lord, would you grow us in his likeness and in his truth so that we can show and share our Lord Jesus to the people around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.